This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt. And today I am with Chantel Gray to talk about her new book, Anarchism, after Deleuze and Guterri, Fabulating Futures, published by Bloomsbury Press, 2022. Deleuze and Guterri never identified as anarchists, nor do they seem to know much about its historical development or continued practice. Yet their individual and collective work belies this apparent and willful oversight through a steady consideration of revolutionary subjectivity and active political experimentation. Chantel Gray argues that while we cannot and should not attempt to call them anarchists, their work resonates with core anarchist principles such as prefiguration, careful experimentation, and emergent strategies aimed at creating a feeling that life is worth living. This involves paying attention to both joyous effects and sad passions, which necessitates the affirmation of all of chance, and from that, fabulating new modes of existence. By bringing together the philosophy of Deleuze and Guterri, With theory and practices of anarchism, the book demonstrates that fabulating the future is nothing short of a noetic art, uh, making reasonable something which initially was senseless. And Chantel Gray is associate professor in the School of Philosophy at Northwest Point University, South Africa. Chantel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, fantastic. I thought this book uh, was wonderful. So give us a sense of not only your academic background, but the impetus that led to the writing of Anarchism after Deleuze and Guterri. I have quite um, a checkered background. (laughs) I um, started off, uh, I guess, in cognitive linguistics and uh, more analytic philosophy, really. And actually through literature, uh, discovered the work of Deleuze and Guattari, and uh, also became interested in anarchism. I met some anarchists. Um, I was, I guess, close politically at that point um, in my thinking. But, you know, like many other people, I didn't have a really good understanding of what 
anarchism was, um, sort of some ideas, you know, I'd read maybe a little bit of Emma Goldman, um, but it was rough, you know, it, it was, there was no clear idea. And so um, at the beginning of my, of doing my PhD, which was quite later in my um, academic career, I really gave myself over to, to Deleuze and Guattari and just kind of went for it. And at that point, I had already um, turned more to continental philosophy and had done quite a bit of work in French philosophy. Um, but I, I really started exploring their work. And at the same time, I was reading a lot of anarchist texts and really becoming more familiar with um, anarchist theory and practice and also started calling myself an anarchist. So I guess it sort of um, became a kind of a melting pot in my head. And I started seeing these overlaps between their thinking, even though, of course, we know Deleuze and Guattari called themselves Marxist right until the end. Um, and as you just read, they, they didn't really in, engage in any substantial way with anarchist thought, except maybe through their... Um, you know, the work of peer clusters and, um, and, you know, they were also, they were also friends with him. So, so there was that kind of, um, I guess, meeting between anarchism and Deleuze and Guattari. And so, and so when I thought about writing this book, um, I wanted to, I wanted to bring these, these ideas together in a kind of, um, substantive way. And of course, many other, you know, many other theorists have done this, Thomas Nail, uh, Saul Newman, you know, all the post-anarchists. But um, I, none of those works are, are quite intro introductory and also extensive enough for me. They focus on very specific ideas in these um, different trajectories. And so I wanted to bring these ideas together um, in a kind of overview of what anarchism is and what Deleuze and Guattari is. No, I, I thought this was a very helpful introduction, not only to contemporary anarchist theory and praxis, but importantly, an introduction to two very difficult uh, 20th century thinkers, Deleuze and Guattari. Tell us a little bit about who they were and the quickly the, like, the kind of shape of their philosophy. What was their philosophical ouvert? So, of course, they wrote about many things. Deleuze started off um, writing, actually, books about other um, philosophers. You know, we have the book on Hume, Nietzsche, um, and so on. And so he was really schooled in philosophy. Um, he's a very rigorous thinker. Um, but he also, what makes Deleuze unique is that he takes kind of other people's work <laughs> and puts a kind of spin on them, right? And reads them almost through his own project. Um, and what is his project? This is a very, this is a very broad question, but I think, um, I think we can sum it up in a, in a kind of a way. Um, and I think it's really contained for me in difference and repetition, um, at least his philosophical work before Atari. And that is that he's really trying to think not only about ontology, but about what gives rise to life. What are the conditions needed for life to unfold, for uh, thought to unfold, and for 
something new to emerge from what is already there. And of course, you know, we know that he was very influenced by uh, Simon Dom. And so, so we can think of his, of his work really as thinking about ontogenesis rather than ontology. So Guattari, on the other hand, was a psychoanalyst. He actually studied under Lacan. Um, but of course, Lacan didn't like Anti-Oedipus, which he wrote with Deleuze. And uh, he moved away from that kind of thinking uh, quite substantially in his life. And it was really in their meeting, of course, you know, Guattari was also involved in many forms of politics. Um, and something happened when he and, and Deleuze met that I think um, is unique in the history of philosophy. And I guess what it brought um, to Deleuze's philosophy and also to Guattari's practice is something very unique. They started thinking about these very difficult philosophical concepts that Deleuze had developed in his work and how to apply it not only in, say, thinking about thought, which is, of course, something that is very, that is a very philosophical question, um, but, you know, how do we think about it in terms of politics, in terms of sociopolitical organization, in terms of, um, you know, even kind of, animals, if you want to think, and, and stratifications in, in, you know, kind of social strata. So women, animals, um, in terms of race classification. And so it became this very broad project, which initially, of course, it finds its culmination in, in what is philosophy. But I guess the most, maybe the most read book, I would say, is probably A Thousand Plateaus, because it's so beautifully written. It's this kind of amalgamation of poetry and psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalysis um, and, uh, and philosophy and just all of these different things mixed together. But of course, the first book was Anti-Oedipus. And um, that is a book in which they bring together the theory of Marx and, uh, and psychoanalysis. Psycho, why am I saying it strangely? Uh, psychoanalysis. And so... Um, and, and I guess that's more a formal book. It's a, it's quite a difficult book because it deals with sort of their rethinking of capitalism and desire. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a very, they have two very big oeuvres together and separately um, covering many, many subjects. But I guess, um, I guess if you want to sum it up, what they really both, for me at least, are trying to think about is how to live in ways that allow us more freedom, both individually and um, communally. And that pertains particularly to a project of anarchism, a sense of kind of a greater freedom that now exists. And so as we go into the book, and we, and we narrow, we go from the broad, what they were doing to the narrow of how they relate to anarchism. You begin the book discussing this concept of statist realism. Uh, tell us a little bit about this concept and how it relates to the way in which we collectively and individually conceptualize politics. So statist realism is um, really a term that I kind of... I kind of invent by riffing on Mark Fisher's term of capitalist realism. 
And of course, um, what he's trying to to talk about is how capitalism has changed um, the very way we think in the world. And so using that, I start thinking about why it is that, you know, when you speak to people, when I speak to people often, uh, people who aren't anarchists, there's always this question like, okay, but how will we organize without the state? Um, you know, who will clean the trash? Um, what happens when societies become too large? You need a state. And so this, I think, is a question that fascinates me, but it definitely fascinated Deleuze and Guattari also. Um, and, you know, they developed this idea of the state apparatus. And so I started thinking about what it is exactly that keeps us from thinking about what social organization could look like outside of state societies, especially given that we've only lived, we've only, um, lived in, in state societies for a relatively short period of time, um, you know, in our evolution. So, so it's kind of a conundrum. And so the more I started thinking about it, the more this idea of statist realism um, kind of fermented in my brain, where I was starting to think about, okay, it's something to do not, it's something to do with the limits of our thought. There's something that has changed the way we think to such a degree that we can't get outside of that framework. And so, you know, Deleuze, refers to this as the dogmatic image of thought. You know, he explains in the third, um, the third chapter of Difference and Repetition, um, and of, of course he's thinking about philosophy and what keeps us from breaking out of philosophical um, kind of frameworks. But he says, well, what happens is that, you know, we, we have these traditions and these traditions get passed on and they get developed but the frameworks themselves never get questions. So the content of the framework changes, but the framework itself stays in place. And so thinking about politics, you know, and, and as I was writing this, um, Biden had just been chosen. And, um, you know, that, that meme of, of uh, Bernie Sanders went viral. And I was so struck by that because... It was so funny, you know, that that Biden's inaugural kind of, um, you know, became backgrounded by this viral image of Senator Sanders. And, you know, it, of course, it was cute. It was kind of cute because he was sitting there with mittens and so on. And, it, you know, and a mask because it was still the pandemic. But um, what struck me really about it was that it seemed like a placeholder for what people wanted. This ideal, like, oh no, the wrong person. You know, we're glad that Trump is out of, of, of office, but the wrong person is now in office. And we should have somehow had Bernie Sanders there. But that is a, a limit in imagination because instead of thinking, hold on, there's something wrong with the way in which we're the framework of politics is done. So we change the content. We go from Trump to Biden to Bernie Sanders. And all of that is great because at least there's change, right? It's not totalitarian. Um, and, and so that, that's not to be dismissed. Um, but it is a limit 
on what is actually possible. And so status realism, realism describes that, the limits of imagination that, that the state itself has imposed on our thoughts. So thought itself conforms to the form of the state. And, um, you know, this is kind of implicit, actually, in Deleuze and Guattari's idea of the state apparatus, um, you know, which doesn't refer to the state, but to a kind of form of organization that is kind of hierarchizing, um, you know, sets up different groups against each other and so on. No, I, I've read much Mark Fisher and I appreciate his work, but after reading your book, I think I much prefer statist realism as a more encompassing <laughs> concept than capitalist realism, although both are extremely useful. So you mentioned the uh, state apparatus in your, in your prior answer and leading on in your argument, you mentioned that states, and you, you, you also touched on this in your prior answer, that states aren't historically necessary that states are actually very contingent in that humans have been around for tens of thousands of years, but states as we know them have only been around for a few thousand and in many parts of the world only for a few hundred. What are the ways in which the state in its infancy and as it continued on employed its power, asserted its power, expanded its power in these notions um, of the uh, the apparatus of, of, of capture, as, as you mentioned. Yes, yeah, so Deleuze and Guattari develop um, the apparatus of capture in terms of, what was it again? Profit, uh, it's profit, tax, and striation. So what the state does, of course, there's this theory. There are many theories in political science, and these theories have actually become so commonplace that most people assume them. One of them is that, that, well, we need states because people are actually in their own selves quite brutish in nature. And, you know, we would, um, we would be out to get each other all the time. And so we need the state. And so how does the state go about capturing the world in the way we know it? So early states, of course, the first thing they have to do is they have to capture land. So once there's land, they can kind of stride and grid it. And people then get assigned to land. And why do people get assigned to land? Well, the state can then say, look, we own this land. Now you're on this land that we own, but you have to pay us tax. So you have to work for the state. And so people start working for the state. And of course, this is not done, um, you know, people didn't want to do this. They were forced to do this. And this is what goes um, unaccounted for in many accounts of early states, is the violence by which they enforced uh, themselves in territories. And, you know, if, if people don't believe it, of course, there are very good examples in recent history, which is colonialism, which was just a kind of extension of what had already taken place, um, a very dramatic extension. But that violence was always there. And so um, one of the, the more interesting aspects for me, actually, um, because I guess this, you know, this kind of makes sense. It's like, okay, they, you know, they take lots of land, they say, this land belongs to me, this is 
this is my land, we're the state, or I'm the king, this land belongs to me, I'm going to grid it, I'm going to put you all there, then I know where you are, you have to work for me. And um, and as, as a kind of um, what you gain from this is that I protect you against other kingdoms. But I guess the more interesting thing for me um, was, was reading um, James Scott and, and, and thinking about food, specifically wheat, and the, the reduction in um, the variety of food or, or, or food stuff that was grown because wheat is very taxable. And, and so, of course, it makes it easy for, uh, you know, for the state to kind of assign a plot to a certain person to make them grow wheat, to kind of weigh that wheat, and then to say, okay, this is the amount of tax you owe me. And so, so this, is, this is really interesting because if we think about monocrops today, it sort of became clear to me that this has a much longer history than, than what we typically think, right? Monocrops seem to, to be something that is kind of modern and, um, you know, has taken place, especially in the last, let's say, 50 years has, has become um, worse. And of course it has, but it has this long history right to the beginning of states. And so I guess that was actually very interesting for me because when I think about states today and the kinds of problems we have from states today, it seems like even though states are, are um, you know, are not necessary and, and they have taken up a relatively short um, amount of space in the history of, of humankind, they've also implemented, um, I guess, social engineering practices that have a quite a long history. And although they seem very sophisticated today, and they are very sophisticated today, they have these sort of links. And so when we look at things like monocrops, um, you know, we can think about the, the invention of the cadastral map. And so mapping, which now, of course, is linked to things like GPS, and, you know, everyone knows where you are all the time. Um, so it's, it's hugely sophisticated. But it has, again, a very long history to social engineering practices of the state. Um, uh, and so, so when Deleuze and Guattari talk about the state apparatus as an apparatus of capture, it's really because the state captures land, it captures people, it grids them, it, it um, creates kind of binary binaries um, between them so that they can be used in specific ways uh, for state purposes. So you, we've already discussed a little bit about, and you mentioned this, about taking over people and, and through both the ownership of land and then the payment of tax from working on the land that the state derives its, its income. Income related to taxation, related to economy, and so in a, in a kind of long sense, how are how do the ways in which Deleuze and Guattari discussing things like taxation, apparatus of capture, as well as capitalism itself, how does this relate to anarchist thought? How does this inform anarchist thought? Discussing the way in which the state is related to both economic extraction and then the capitalist 
enterprise itself? So this is a really good question um, because this is actually this is actually what makes Deleuze and Guattari's work kind of closer for me to anarchist practices than to Marxist. And of course, you know, um, this is not to kind of diss all of Marxism because, you know, anarchist and Marxist ideas came out of the same milieu. In fact, many of the ideas then put forth by Marx was actually kind of developed by Proudhon. And so, you know, they were in the same milieu. So we have to think about this as ideas, kind of libertarian ideas that emerged from a milieu in which they were all living. Um, but of course, what makes uh, anarchist critiques of the state and of, of um, even of capitalism different is that Marx still sees the need for a kind of transitional state, which you know he posits will wither away. But for anarchists, this is a problem of form and content. This is saying, you know, what we spoke about a bit earlier, saying, okay, hold on, we wanted to change quite a lot in what we see in the world around us, but we still think the state form is necessary. So it keeps that form. And what anarchists say is if we keep that form, we can't separate means from ends. So if our ends are freedom and stateless societies, we have to prefigure that from the very start. Otherwise, we end up with Stalinism. So, you know, we can't separate those. And so this is where Deleuze and Guattari are very close to anarchist analyses because they understand this about the state or the state apparatus. They understand that this form of organization will always lead to more of that form of organization. You cannot escape a statist form of organization by using a state apparatus in any kind of way, which is not to say that there's no place for any hierarchical organization, right? Like sometimes... Um, and, and I don't mean like strong hierarchical organization. I mean sort of weak hierarchical organization. Like sometimes you're in a situation and somebody needs to make a decision. And maybe there's somebody who has more expertise in a certain kind of field. And so that is a kind of natural leadership position. And anarchists are not against that. <laughs> They're very much for, um, you know, sometimes there's this understanding that that maybe anarchists are against uh, skills or, or um, kind of expertise, but that's not at all what it is. It's more that they encourage you to develop your own expertise and not necessarily expertise that serve the state in some way. Now, of course, you know, for, for Marx also, um, economics is the base of society, but... For anarchists, politics and, and economics can't be so very easily um, distinguished. They go together. And this is actually what Deleuze and Guattari also make clear with their um, understanding of the, the apparatus of capture, which includes the state part and the economic part. So, and not even those two, you know, these are complex um the world is complex. We, you know, to, to reduce 
especially these days, to reduce the world to, to a kind of simple base, I think is, is to take away the complexity of the world. And that actually denies um, more complex theorizations of how to overcome the problems that we have. And so, and so again, you know, and I think this was actually at, at least some of the anthropological uh, work that Deleuze and Guattari were working with um, definitely influenced their, their thoughts um, and gave them kind of some inclination of anarchist views. Um, again, the work of Pierre Clustres. And I think, and I'm not pronouncing that right, but my French is not good enough to <laughs> to pronounce it in any proper way. No, my, my French isn't good either. So no, I'm not judging on that front. <laughs> so um, so I think that that's, that's interesting, is that they definitely had that understanding, right? There was that anarchistic understanding that we cannot just have an economic base. It's not only about these two classes in societies. It's actually that, you know, there's there's stuff like race, like um, gender, like um, economics, like politics, um, like, like migrancy and all of this stuff, all of this um, and many more other things, technology and, and whatever makes up a very complex society. And so to understand, um, you know, of course, they do give a special importance to capitalism. And I do think, you know, and of course, anarchists also do that because capitalism is a system that has now been in place. And what we've seen from it is that it adapts. It continually adapts. So they do give prominence to it just as anarchists do, but they do so in a more constellative manner. So, you know, when anarchists like Deleuze and Guattari, talk about things like um, race or, um, or economics or the state, they do so as part of a constellation of concepts. And so you have to understand their concepts always as part of what they would call maybe an assemblage of other concepts. So you can never understand something only as, as like this kind of um, discrete idea. And I think that is what makes... Well, that's what also gives me kind of resonance between Deleuze and Guattari and anarchist thought. And, and, um, and I think that's actually what is useful for us for thinking about anarchist practices today is to understand even how these concepts have developed, um, you know, how things have changed, and to understand them in terms of new um, constellations of, of concepts. Uh, for example, and, and, you know, I talk about this later in the book, but is algorithmic governmentality and the way in which technology has really um, changed both, um, you know, you know, kind of social engineering practices of the state. Um, it's changed capitalism. Um, you know, it's, it's changed the way we interact with the world. And so, so I think that that kind of update is, is really important. And I think, you know, this is something I really like about anarchism and Deleuze and Guattari's work is that it, it kind of lends itself to auto-critique. So 
you know, I think Deleuze even says this somewhere, like he would hate for people to just, um, you know, to, just to kind of follow his work slavishly. And he didn't do that with other with other philosophers, you know. He kind of, as he said, he took them from behind and created kind of monstrous offspring from them. And And I think that's really something that is, yeah, that resonates so strongly for me between these bodies of work is that kind of auto-critique, like, okay, we've, we've said this, but is it still valid? You know, can we still use these concepts? And I think that's really important for, um, for, for making any political praxis alive. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. You mentioned algorithmic governmentality, which leads to the next section of your book. Your first three chapters that we discussed are a kind of symptomology of the state. Uh, and then the, the, the remaining three chapters are that uh, becoming a new, becoming future, that, that uh, protentive look uh, to to employ a kind of neologism, so discuss the way in which, and you mentioned this briefly, the way in which, and this is so essential for kind of prefiguring an anarchist horizon, the way in which algorithmic systems change, condition the way in which we relate to the world, humans, the way in which al- algorithms are conditioning us in ways you know, more vast and more internalized and exteriorized than at any other point in history. So this is a, a continuing um, field of interest for me, and particularly because um, technology, you know, a couple of years ago, even 10, 20 years ago, you know, you could keep up with techno- technological change. It, it was it was possible. <laughs> but things are changing so quickly now that um, it's not only almost impossible to keep up with technological change, um, but also to theorize it. Because if you think about this, theory um, usually <laughs> takes quite long. You know, we kind of, to really grapple with something, you kind of have to immerse yourself in a whole lot of thought, other people's thought, um, the the thing that you're investigating, um, things that led up to that. And so to kind of theorize what is happening usually takes long. But 
I think one of the demands that algorithmic governmentality, and just to make clear to people what algorithmic governmentality is, it is this idea that people and social problems can be treated as data sets um, rather than as kind of complex co-imbrications of all kinds of things that that demand different kinds of answers, you know. Um, And so it's kind of flattened uh, the way in which we respond to real world problems. So that's on a a kind of more, um, I guess, if you want to say a more statist kind of uh, level, but at a more individual level and communal level, I think it's really, really changing (laughs) the way, um, not only that we interact with each other, uh, uh, but but also the way we think. Again, um, you know, there's, there's a kind of a new form of thought, I would say, is unfolding. And so um, one of the things that is obviously clear that it has done is that it's eroded societies. You know, people are very, um, we're all very online people. <laughs> and so, um, you know, if you think about this, what does being online lend itself to? Well, if you're on Twitter, for example, it lends itself to very quick responses. It lends itself to um, quite polemic responses to social problems, to um, polarized uh, kind of responses. And, and of course, algorithms, as we know, learn from our behavior, but they don't only learn from our behavior, they're actually teaching us how to behave. So, you know, maybe a silly example, but it's it's a good example to, to illustrate this, is if you think about emoticons. Now, emoticons have been with us for quite some time. But I sometimes wonder, you know, when we when we are experiencing um, something in the world, like uh, let's say something happens at work and you're feeling kind of uncomfortable, you're not sure how, instead of thinking about what it is that you're feeling, you assign an emoticon in your head to it, you know. And so there's that kind of, um, again, it's a kind of simplification um, of what is happening, but it is also a simplification of the actual emotions we're feeling. And what is interesting to me, really, is that I've been doing a lot of research on dopamine and dopamine pathways. And of course, we know that that these technologies are designed to, to hijack our attention and our, our actual dopamine pathways. And so I think something very insidious is happening that is happening at a kind of pre-conscious level. Um, and so I think the way we think about about life, about politics, about um, community, uh, about social organization, about love, about all of these things is changing at a level I don't think we're even aware of yet. And so I don't talk so much about this in the book, um, but but I do, do touch on this. And I think, um, you know, when we think of politics, for me, it, it has real implications for how we do politics because um, I don't think we can. Uh, so I'm not someone who's against technology or anything like that. I think it's made our 
our lives wonderful. So I'm not, um, I want to say abolish everything and, you know, let's all throw it up in the air. But I do think for us to get back to a place where we, uh, you know, Rancière makes this distinction between the political, which is kind of, you know, what we would think of as like status politics, you know, voting, that kind of thing. And then, so that's the political. And then doing politics. Doing politics would be like what we do on the ground, you know, to organize food for for homeless or, um, you know, to kind of uh, organize a protest or something like that. And so I, I think more and more we're participating in the political and it's a kind of algorithmic mm-hmm. political. And I think for us to get back to really doing politics, we we need to forge communities offline. Not that online communities haven't helped people. I think they're hugely important in many ways. You know, we see this, especially in the LGBTQI uh, movement. Um, they've, they've really given people support and information and so on. Um, so, so again, you know, it's, it's, it's not as simple as saying it's bad. But I do think we need to get offline. We need to get in touch with people we need to develop um, our ways of responding to the world together in kind of more nuanced ways than what than what uh, the internet allows for, than what algorithmic governmentality allows for. Yes, you you end that chapter on on you know called hacking for our lives on a, on a rather bleak note, right? You you say that not only do we have this kind of Know, ecological epidemiological crisis that is occluding future potentialities of thought and action but we also have this algorithmic governmentality and conditioning which is limiting our means of conceptualizing participation in social realms uh, but you say in the, in the in the following chapter that no we can fabulate a life worth living a, a, a believing in this world again. And you reference uh, the three aspects of what you call the the counter-actualization. And as someone who loves Pulp Fiction, the fact that they're named after genres of of genre (laughs) fiction, I appreciate. So just elaborate how these counter-actualization, how counter-actualization in these three aspects leads us to forging uh, a a world to believe in again. So... So I, I think there's this interesting tension in Deleuze and Guattari studies between, between affirmation and non-affirmation. <laughs> so there's been the kind of theorists who want to affirm everything and so on, and there's a new kind of strand of theorists saying, let's break everything down. And so this tension is something that really interests me because we see both of it in, in the work of, of Deleuze and Guattari. And and so I started thinking really about, you know, this 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 thing that Deleuze says and that Deleuze and Guattari even say in, in many different um, parts of their work. Deleuze says perhaps one of the most difficult things is believing in this world. And it struck me as true. It struck me as like, you know, like when I see my students or... Um, sometimes, you know, just read articles and so on. Or when you read Stigler and he talks about young people who have lost the ability to dream, you know, this is something that really, 
really haunts his own thought also, this idea of, of like dreamless societies. It really made me think about what anarchism tries to do in the world. And I think what it does try and do is give us reasons to believe in the world, in this world, to make, to kind of create the revolution in the here and now. And so I found this kind of funny little throwaway comment in, in Difference and Repetition. It's right in the beginning where Deleuze talks a little bit about um, this idea of the detective novel and the, the science fiction novel and the apocalyptic novel, but he never explains it. It's just this kind of throwaway comment. But I really liked it. And I started thinking, you know, I also really like um, actually during COVID, and I think it was maybe my coping mechanism, but I started reading only um, science fiction for a while, even though I've always loved science fiction, but it just I sort of became obsessive. And um, it was just kind of interesting because it, it kind of, you know, I guess that's something I also love about Deleuze and Guattari is that they bring together something quite literary and something quite philosophical. Um, I really love that about their work. And so this idea of, of a detective novel and a science fiction novel and an apocalyptic novel started sort of fermenting in my head. And I started thinking, funny enough, about the three syntheses of time that Toulouse talks about. And those are notoriously difficult to, to grapple with. But I sort of started seeing counter-actualization as... I guess this way of countering um, algorithmic governmentality. And I saw, saw it in terms of these three aspects, which you just mentioned. And so the first is the detective novel. And so there's even a, you know, there's a chapter in um, uh, A Thousand Plateaus about the novella. It's a very sort of, nobody really writes about that chapter. It's a kind of you know, I think everyone reads it and goes like, what is this chapter doing here? Because it seems kind of strange, you know, it's not, it doesn't really speak to anything like the others in, in such a clear way. But I started thinking about, about that chapter and they asked that question, what happened? What happened? And so I started seeing this chapter in a little bit of a new light and thinking about it in terms of symptomatology um, and, and of course, you know, this is something that they get from Nietzsche, who, who saw us as clinicians of culture. And, and so I started thinking, well, maybe this kind of detective aspect of counteractualization is the symptomatology, is figuring out what happened. And, you know, as Deleuze says, posing problems at, uh, at the level of practice. Uh, and so this is interesting because he says that in the Hume book already, which is his first book. Um, and of course, this has now become something, you know, a little bit of a, it's, it's kind of a cliche almost, um, you know, and if, I didn't even want to use it in the book because it's been said so much, but I do like it where he says um, problems always get the answers they deserve. So I started thinking about this, like what, what does this mean, you know, in terms of anarchist praxis? Okay, well, it means... We have to think about the world. We have to diagnose the world in ways that don't submit us to the dogmatic image of thought. 
And if we can't do that, we're posing problems at the level of the dogmatic image of thought rather than at the level of practice, as he says. And so I started thinking, well, then this must be the first aspect of counteractualization is really, really diagnosing problems outside our own uh, frames of reference, which is a difficult thing to do, right? Because it's not very easy to get outside of your own frame of reference. So it's a, it's a challenge. It's actually a challenge. Um, and a, a hugely difficult one, I, I, I would think. Um, but then, you know, the second, the second sort of aspect, I was thinking, okay, but if we're raising these problems, um, it's obviously because we want to move to something better. And what is this thing that we want to move towards? So that, I would say, is the science fiction or utopian dimension of counteractualization. And so, you know, we can also think in terms of this as then the first and second synthesis of time. So, you know, forming of habits. And then Deleuze says, but the forming of habits is actually presupposed by something. What is that? Well, memory. So you make habits when you have memories of something, right? You can't form habits if there's no memory to make the habits from. But so this is kind of very interesting for me again, because then I started thinking, well, this is quite close to the Ritornello. And, and of course, you know, actually, if you think about this, the three syntheses of time is really uh, taken up in the Ritornello or the refrain chapter in A Thousand Plateaus. It's uh, just a, they just give it a different tenor. And, um, and so what do they talk about? You know, it, it opens with that beautiful little piece about uh, the child singing in the dark. And, you know, what? why does a child sing in the dark? Well, because he or she or they are feeling a bit lost. They're feeling a little like maybe they're afraid of the dark. So they sing to give themselves a feeling of home, a little bit of consistency. And, and then they move on and they say, they talk about the, the, the person in the home. And so there's, immediately I started thinking, okay, so there's, you know, there's this um, relationship between kind of creating a little bit of consistency. And then what is the next thing they say? Going out into the open and experimentation. And so this is very anarchist, right? Because prefiguration is exactly that, isn't it? It's, it's kind of experimenting with um, new forms of, of communal living or new forms of protest or whatever it is. But it's not out of nowhere. It's based on like previous practices. It's refining previous practices. And it's also, you know, if, if you think about politics and, and, you know, many sort of radical politics have been critiqued for this, that they fall apart. They fall apart because, you know, suddenly people, we can say deterritorialized too fast. You know, they tried out too many new things too quickly they, let's say they moved into a commune, they all became uh, polyamorous, and then suddenly they realized this is not for them and the whole political project fell apart. So instead of just throwing everything to the wind, what Deleuze and Guattari say is, well, we do need experimentation, 
but we need to do so carefully. And that's how we build the body without organs, right? Is we practice careful experimentation. But experimentation requires a final aspect. And that final aspect is the apocalyptic aspect. And this is actually, of course, the more destructive part then. Because what is an apocalypse? It's a total destruction of what is. And it is making life out of this destruction. And so this, for me, is where it brings together the the affirmative part of Deleuze and the non-affirmative camp, you know. It's affirming all of chance. That's what Deleuze says. And so it includes a destructive aspect as much as a building aspect. Affirmation is not only about these joyous affects. It's also sometimes about destroying the, the lines of domination in the world as much as in our own thought. We have elaborated on right, finding experimentation with a kind of consistent base after posing these problems outside of our framework and then finding ways of, of reducing domination, of ridding ourselves of domination. And in that final piece, ridding ourselves of domination, that's always synonymous with the notion of the revolution. If, and if there's any kind of concept that anarchists are associated with, uh, anytime I grow a beard, I have people call me a, a bomb. I look like a bomb throwing anarchist, right? Performing the propaganda of the deed. But anarchists are known as revolutionary figures. And you connect the Deleuze Gutierrean concept of the nomadic war machine to the notion of revolution. What What is this nomadic war machine in their thought and, and how does it relate to anarchist revolution? Yeah. Uh, so, I must say, Jackson, that I really tried to um, avoid talking about revolution in the book. Um, <laughs> I was kind of really scared of, of going there because, you know, it is that propaganda of the deed, which, you know, even though it's such a small part of the history of anarchism, it's so deeply ingrained in people's brains. And, of course, the CIA was directly, or the FBI, rather, was directly, um, you know, responsible for this because they they developed um, this kind of file on people like um, Emma Goldman and so on and started talking about anarchists being this, these dangerous people. Um, and she was classified as the most dangerous woman, you know, in the world at some point. And so I think that is stuck somewhere in people's minds. But the funny thing is that you know, if you look, you know, it was the time of revolution, the, the kind of 1920s, early, uh, you know, 1900s. It was the time of revolutions, late 1800s. Lots of revolutions took place. Um, it, it was a word that was in the air and, and so on. But what is interesting is that people also, um, it's not just anarchists. It's a lot of leftist people that actually um, resorted to propaganda by the deed. And so um, it just kind of became associated with anarchism, specifically because of the word anarchy, which was used derogatively um, in the media. And so having tried to avoid this, <laughs> I realized that I, I really couldn't because, um, because it, it's so such an integral part um, of anarchism. 
and to take the revolution out of anarchism is is to give it a kind of um, purely pacifist uh, kind of framework, and I, I think that actually takes away something uh, something about the anarchist spirit, one can say. And so, you know, this is of course also true for the nomadic war machine, which is again also a very difficult concept. Um, to grapple with Indolos and Guattari's thought. Um, but for them, it's important. And there, there are very strong resonances between the nomadic war machine and revolution. Um, and so the nomadic war machine for Deleuze and Guattari is that which resists the state apparatus. So it's a form, it's a form of organization or of organizing social life and even thought processes that are counter to things like hierarchy, domination, and so on. But then they make this interesting claim. They say that the state apparatus doesn't have its own war machine. And so it appropriates the nomadic war machine. And so you start thinking, okay, Great. So there's the nomadic war machine that is the resi- that resists the state apparatus, but at the same time, it's also something that the state apparatus kind of captures. So, how does it work? <laughs> so for them, it is of of course it is something that um, resists, but but we, I guess, a good way of thinking about this in practical terms is recuperation, and we often see this, right? We often see radical protests and so on. And then we see the police come in and we see the state come in or some state officer and they they make a kind of deal with the protesting people. Uh, they co-opt them. And so, so we can think of it as a pharmacon. We can think of it, the nomadic war machine as something that can be used to effectuate freedom in the world or it is something that can be used against us again. And so it requires a little bit of vigilance, really, is this nomadic war machine. (laughs) So a good way of thinking about it is then in terms of this kind of continuing revolution. And that's something that I think especially contemporary anarchists um, have thought about a lot. You know, revolution for them is definitely for the majority of anarchists uh, living today, you know, and revolution is not something that is this, this kind of event that is going to take place and going to change the world, which is what they used to think, right? Um, that was very much in the, the kind of early conception of, of revolution. Now, rather revolution is seen as something almost that is accumulative. So it's something that we practice in the here and now, individually, together, all the time. It is the, a kind of persistent action towards freedom or towards more freedom. And so I, I really like that idea of persistent action, you know, kind of compulsion almost um, towards better ways of living. And what does that mean? It means, it really, it really means that the revolution is something that we construct and we co-construct. And it's also the thing that I would say, you know, Stigler talks about 
about how the the kind of how desire we can say a desire for life and for communal life has kind of been um, disrupted, and and this has left many people feeling disaffected, um, like like life is not worth living, and. And revolution for me is almost that thing. He talks about needing long circuits. What are long circuits? Well, long circuits for him is the stuff that allows for kind of, or it's, we can think of it as something like transgenerational memory. Now, if something has a long history, now this is what the state does well, right? Think about it. The state creates transgenerational memory, long circuits. And so that allows it to auto-reproduce itself in our thought and in the real world. Now, if we have practices in the real world that have been disrupted, like like community, for example, communal practices have been disrupted so much because we're online all the time, it's very difficult to have memories of what protests used to look like or what people used to do when, you know, the police came in, um, you know, what are the tactics that you can use? So those kinds of things, that's a very practical way of thinking about it, right? Is those practical elements start forming the stuff of long circuits, the kind of memory we need um, to make us feel that life is worth living. And that really, for me, is the revolution. The revolution is not just this thing that changes the world, it, it's that which, which builds long-term memories of these kind of political and social practices that enable freedom. And so I, I guess it's a little bit of a, diffi- a different conception of, of revolution, but you know that's also what Deleuze and Guattari think about when they think about the nomadic war machine. You know, of course, the image one gets, well, at least I, you know, you get this image of a war machine and lots of people have said, why did they have to use this idea of war machine? But I, again, I think it's because in war, something gets destroyed before something new can come out of it. Mm. And so there has to be that kind of, there is a destructive element that wrong, runs alongside um this will to life. And so, you know, I think that's really important to, to remember in this in this kind of idea of revolution. Well, your explication of the book and its contents have been absolutely fantastic. I I, I was taken aback at every chapter on the the ways you definitely were able to employ Deleuze and Gutierrez, as well as contemporary anarchist uh, theories and thoughts and practices uh, to illuminate issues as as old as state existence and algorithmic governmentality. So thank you for uh, answering these questions and elaborating on these very pertinent and relevant theories of these two philosophers. But before we we end the podcast, I just want to ask if you have any future projects planned relating to either or Deleuze uh, Guattari or uh, anarchism. Um, well, I, I guess the, the final chapters, uh, sort of is where my, my thought is going. So I'm, 
very much in the in the land of cybernetics at the moment. Um, thinking about cybernetics and anarchism, my, my thought on, on, on cybernetics has changed quite a lot. I'm not, I don't only have negative thoughts about it um, because it's such a complex field. Um, but I guess there's something, there's something interesting for me about the bridge between science technology and anarchism and Deleuze and Guattari and the way that they, um, you know, maybe the way that we can rethink um, even, even, even the kind of um, the, the necessity for the sciences and the humanities. So I'm, I guess that's a broad way of answering you. Um, but, you know, there, there is, these are big debates going on, uh, you know, constant debate, like, do we need the humanities? What does the humanities do? And this is something that is really interesting in Deleuze and Guattari's work, is that they draw very heavily on the sciences, the biological sciences, the arts, uh, culture, so the humanities, you know, philosophy. And I think they bring together something uh, so uniquely for thinking for thinking about kind of cosmological questions. Um, and they do so philosophically, not scientifically. But I think there's there's a kind of a bridge that that I'm looking for at the moment. No, yeah. I Deleuze and Guterri have have received much scorn for their uh appropriation of scientific terms and terminology, but I nonetheless think the way they employ it is fruitful and interesting and I think core to their most relevant theories. So I'm excited to see, Chantel, uh, where that research goes in the future. Thank you for sharing. Well, uh, Chantel, thank you again uh, so much for this interview and for discussing uh, this wonderful and provocative book, uh, Anarchism After Deleuze and Guterri. Thank you so much, Jackson. It was really lovely to be here. And thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. I really appreciate that. Now, thank you for, for joining me today. I have been your host, Jackson Reinhardt, discussing Anarchism After Deleuze and Guterri, Fabulating Futures, written by Chantel Gray, published by Bloomsbury 2022. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.